Hey, Tong Church, I am excited for this special episode. And a year ago, the very first episode in this new set was with Dave Ramsey, and he was here. And many of you have seen that, but if you have not, after this episode, make sure to go listen to that one because he answered amazing questions about church, about pastoring, his own salvation story, and make sure to check that out on Talking Church. But today I'm joined by the millennial Dave Ramsey, the uh, Arab Dave Ramsey, uh, fill in the blank, but George Camel, you're joining us today. Thank you so yeah. much for being here on Talking Church. It's an honor to be here and to fall in the footsteps of, of Dave and your grandma, who yep. had a fire episode that mm -hmm. I need to go back and watch. Yeah, yeah. Grandma's been here. There's been a lot of lot of great stories here on Talking Church, and you're speaking here this weekend at church, and so it's been an amazing time getting to know you more, and we just love all that is going on at Ramsey. And my first question for you is, did, did you think— as a young Arab immigrant or a son of an immigrant that you would end up being a financial guru. And even today at the book signing line, people coming up, you're my favorite celebrity, people are telling you. Is that what you envisioned when you were uh, new into this world, imagining what you would do with your life? Yeah, from the young age of five, I was like, I want to be a Ramsey personality. <laughs> yep. And I am poised to be a financial expert. I wish I could say that's the case. I, like many people who end up in what they're called to do, you sort of stumble into it and fight your way through it and sort of end up there. And so my story was very much happenstance where I started as an intern in social media and was like, oh, this Dave guy's doing stuff. And then I, the plan changed my life. I started living it out and I got on stages at Ramsey because I just have always loved doing that as a musician. And the team said, hey, that guy, he's got some chops. Let's put him out there. And so it was a story of getting a little bit more rope, being very faithful in that thing right in front of me. And over time, you know, Dave jokes, he's a 30-year overnight success. I'm like a very minutiae version of that, like a 10-year tiny success. So you started at Ramsey as an intern social media? Yeah. What made you apply at Ramsey? Like what even made you want to be a part of that? Well, growing up Arabic Baptist, I was always, uh, I'm also loving humor. I was attracted to John Acuff, if you know him, his mm -hmm. writing yep. style, the stuff Christians like was his book. And so I loved reading his blog and he happened to be working for Dave at the time. And so I was following on social media and he was looking for a kind of an intern writer, social media guy. And so I put my name in the hat and after a lot of persistence and pestering and, you know, trying to prove that I had what it takes to be his intern, I got the job as an intern. So that was my foot in the door at Ramsey. And that led to, you know, an 11 year career in about six different jobs. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you is how has your perception changed of Dave specifically being this larger than life character? Many people know him, obviously, you know, the buildings named after him, right? The, the whole company from being the intern to now being a personality to where I just watched your interview you did with them in the car and have, having a relationship together. Obviously, he's still your boss. But how has that perception changed? I think there's a lot of people listening. Maybe they work in a church or they work in a nonprofit or, or an organization to where as they grow, their relationship with their boss differs. And being that your relationship happens to be with Dave Ramsey, I'm curious. Yeah, that's, you know, when I first started, Dave, Dave has never been this like untouchable CEO. He's there eight to five working with the rest of us eating like he'll just sit down in the cafeteria and just eat lunch with you. He's not this guy in an ivory tower sitting at his desk. I mean, he's on air three hours a day talking to customers. What leaders are actually right. doing that? Talking to the target demo of what they're creating. So I think uh, because of that, I always had a deep respect for his 
style of leadership. He wants to be among the people. And then also, there's still this, like, oh, crap, like, he's the boss. You know what I mean? Like, he's still the decision maker. And so I have a, a deep level of respect that I, I try to steward wisely, even when we're cutting up on air and I make a joke about him. Um, there's still a level of respect that I'll always have for him. And I think over time, as he saw me live out the principles and start to take the Ramsey plan, you know, into the future with new content, bringing humor into it, entertainment, and what other shows can we create? How can we spread this message? I think he has also gained a respect for me and what I can bring to the table. And I think that's any good leader, there's got to be mutual respect there. And so mm -hmm. while there is a, you know, there's a pecking order here, um, there's also mutual respect, and it's been really cool to quote-unquote, become friends with Dave Ramsey. Right, right. I would like to say that I'm friends because I've met him twice now, you know, having him on the podcast. And then when we were out there and when he saw me, he he remembered my name. And so I was like, wow. you know what? We're friends now. So I, I, I consider Dave a friend as well. Well, you talking to him on the podcast is probably more than I've talked to him in a single <laughs> sitting. So like, when you think about it that way, it's pretty mind-boggling. Was there ever a moment where you were making a joke, whether it be on air or off air, where you thought, oh, crap, like, that one is not landing the way I thought it would. Uh, yes, and I, it's like you knew that there was this moment. Do you know about this? I, d I don't. Okay. Maybe I'll remember if you share so it. So Dave, uh, Dave has his Davisms, and we all love them, like the kind of go-to quotes that he's built up over 30 years. He has quite the bank. One of the things he loves to say is, if I can get control of that guy in the mirror, he can be skinny and rich. So he's saying that coming out of a segment into the radio break. I'm sitting next to him, and so as soon as he says that, if I can get control of the guy in the mirror, he can be skinny and rich. I just turned to him and I went, well, Dave, you're one for two. And in my head, it was like, that's the thing you think, but you don't say out loud. <laughs> and then I was like, I just said that into the microphone. To and millions so, of people. To millions of people. And so it took him a second to register what I had just done. And it was too late. We had gone to break by the time he was angry, but we had a good laugh about it. And that's what I like to do. I just like to throw a little jab in there. You know, as a little guy, I had to use verbal uh, abuse because I couldn't stand up to the bullies. And so that's what I do with Dave. We have a very interesting relationship. <laughs> One of the things that we talk about a lot in the church world, but it's the same in the business world, is this idea of imposter syndrome, right? You're sitting there with Dave Ramsey, and I'm sure there's been moments in your mind where you thought, who am I that I'm here sitting with Dave, who started this, telling jokes, becoming friends, how did you grow in confidence? And even today, I mean, you, your first book just came out. You know, we were joking. This is your first book signing here at River Valley, which is awesome. I'm glad that we could uh, break you in on that. But how, how have you overcome that lie that you're not good enough to be here, you, you, you didn't earn your position, or you're just here because of X, Y, Z? What are some thoughts that have come to your mind and ways that you've grown in confidence over the years? Early on, you know, to, to even be in a role like this, it takes this weird level of ego of like wanting to be in front of people and on stage and be the guy and have that confidence. But it also takes this deep humility if you want to do that long term. And so becoming a Ramsey personality, like I still am like confused. Like when I get to heaven, I can't wait to chat with God about it. like, hey, what happened back there? That was weird. Like, why was I the guy? So there's a natural level of humility with imposter syndrome, but there's also the unhealthy side. And so the difference maker, I think, is if God called you to it, then it's a disservice to be like, well, this is not, I'm a, I'm a fake, I'm a fraud. I'm like, yeah, but if God called you to it, like, that's all the authority I need to be on air. And, um, you know, that and Dave Ramsey saying he's qualified to do it. And so there's that idea of sort of this, like, God doesn't, you know, 
what is it? Qualify. He qualifies the called. Doesn't yeah. call the un. Whatever he doesn't it is. call the qualified. Yeah. yeah, it's a real. It's a real great tweet. But I feel like I've lived that out, and um, it's a hard balance. But the one thing I always joke about is like you know God made me five six for a reason. He wanted to keep me close to earth, <laughs> and and humble that way. Um, but there's a piece of the spotlight that I we've seen this in pastor culture. Truthfully, anyone mm-hmm. in leadership that is out front, there is this danger of all of a sudden thinking. I'm better than, the pride starts to come in, the greed, and, um, you know, people's lives implode. And so I'm very careful about that, and Dave is as well. And I feel the weight of responsibility of, like, having the mantle of this, of being one of the Ramsey personalities. So I feel the weight of, like, dude, you screw up, and it's not just your your life on the line. This affects people getting helped. This Mm -hmm. affects team members. And so... I balance that weight every day and try to go, like, I'm not going to take myself seriously, but I take my job and the weight of this very seriously. Mm -hmm. Dave talked when he was with us last year about this, you know, his succession plan and how he's been very open with it, talking about, hey, there's multiple personalities, there's more than one person, there's... We're, we're tracking Dave revenue and non-Dave revenue. We're tracking the downloads on episodes where he's not there. And he talks about that with a pride. How have you felt even working with not only with Dave, but then with Rachel and with the family? I'm on the other side of it to where I work with my dad. I'm in the family business, so to speak. You know, he's been the lead pastor of this church for 29 years and I'm, you know, coming up on 28. And so my whole life I've been here, I've been on staff for, you know, over seven years now. And so I'm I'm kind of the Rachel in that situation. How has that been jumping into a family business? Not only to where there's the dynamic between a coworker and a boss, but there's also a dynamic between a father and a daughter, and obviously his other children working in the business as well. Talk about that from being a non-family member working with other family members. Yeah, well, I've had the pleasure of of seeing the inside, you know, and so when people ask questions and wonder, I've been friends with Daniel since he started. I started before Daniel did, Dave's son, who's now the president of the company. Dave's CEO, Daniel's the president. And so I got to watch Daniel grow up. Like we both kind of cut our teeth together in, in marketing and sales and all these roles. And so I know firsthand the humility that those kids have when they could have the entitlement, you know, of, of someone who, who understands like what they have been given. And the fact that Dave is like, well, if your last name's Ramsey, you got to work twice as hard for people to respect you because he knows there's going to be the Nepo, you know, vibes of like, well, yeah, but Rachel got that. No, Rachel busted her butt for the last 13 years to get to where she's at. And so I think having that respect for the family is a huge part of it. And also realizing like, listen, this isn't going to be passed. Ramsey's not going to be passed down generationally to my family. And I'm totally okay with that to get the impact that I get to make. And, you know, I'm a W2 employee. There's like, Dave's not writing me into his will just because I'm a Ramsey personality. Although, good idea, Dave. If you're (laughs) listening, think about it. And so I think there's a clear delineation, but there's also... I treat Rachel the way I would treat any other personality. And same with Daniel, with the uh, with knowing, like, Daniel's the president. Like, so I'm I'm also going to have some tact with that. But, um, you know, because I've been friends with the whole family and Denise, his other daughter, mm-hmm. I have a deep love and respect for them outside of their, their roles. Was there anything you felt like you did that, you, you know, in the, in the time that you mentioned at the beginning to where people were seeing, hey— He's managing his stage moments well. He's funny. People like him. Maybe our audience would like him. Were there were there strategic moments that you did along the way thinking, hey, that's an aspiration that I have? 
or was it more of, hey, just my giftings kind of naturally bubbled their way up to where it got there? And I don't think either is bad, but I think some people find themselves, whether they're working in a church or in a business, feeling like, do I need to put my neck out there because that I want to preach, that I want to get that opportunity, or do I just let my gifts speak for themselves? Mm. That's so. That's such a difficult tension to manage in, in a career when you're like, there's this thing I want to do over here. I can't just like raise my hand and be like, hey, I think I should do this. And so what I found over time, because I've, I've had frustrating seasons at Ramsey where I'm like, I'm, I know I could do that thing, but man, I just need, someone needs to give me a shot. Someone needs to open the door. And so number one, if you're that leader who can see that in someone else, that is such a gift. You have no clue the impact you're making on that person's life. Not even on their job here. Like not enough leaders are telling their team members, hey, I believe in you. I see what you're doing and I'm going to craft and give you an opportunity to do the thing I can see you're passionate about. Most leaders, they're just too scattered and frantic, and it's not always malicious selfishness. They're just not able to just pause and go, hey, what does Logan need right now? I see this in him. He's got this fire in him to do this thing. Let's let him do the podcast, and let's create a testing ground for that. And if it works, it works. And if not, you know, Logan can eat crow. And so that's kind of, that's been the best parts of my career is when those leaders offer me that opportunity, but there has been a lot of seasons where I get patted on the head and I have a great keynote presentation for the idea and I get patted on the head and they go, just put your head down and, and keep it up, you know, and I don't get to do that thing. And then four years later, I look back, I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to do the thing. And one of those was a narrative podcast from Ramsey. We have caller-driven shows, The Ramsey Show and The Ken Coleman Show, and I always dreamt of doing this like NPR-style storytelling podcast and I always was pitching it for someone else to host because I was like, well, they're not going to have me host it. And then I realized years later in 2019, I got to host the Borrowed Future podcast on the student loan crisis. And over time, I had proven that I had the passion and the chops to create this narrative series on the student loan crisis. And so that was a really cool God moment where I'm like, that's the thing I, the thing you dreamed of four years ago came to fruition and it's so easy to just fly past it because you're focused on the next thing and the next goal. So it's always been a beautiful dance of the thing you want to do with the level of tact and relational equity that you build with the people around you and then seizing that opportunity and crushing it, being so prepared, so excellent that they can't unsee it. And that creates another opportunity and that creates another opportunity. And it's never a straight line. It is the weirdest zigzag path to where you look back and go, wow, that's cool. Look what God did. Yeah. One of the things you said in your message, as well as in your book, is when you started at Ramsey that you went through financial peace and you kind of were even learning these principles on the way. I think that maybe is surprising to people that, you know, they don't require that you be having everything figured out, that you be on baby step seven right when you join the team. Talk about the organizational culture that says, hey, we're with you even when maybe you've made those mistakes. Maybe you're in the midst of that. I'm sure there's been somebody, although very few, that has made a dumb decision or a dumb purchase even while they've been on the team and how that's handled. How has your culture allowed that, carry that? Of course, in the onboarding, you said you went through FPU. That's a part of that. But of course, everyone's on a different journey. Maybe people make less money than others. There's, you know, people who are interns versus, you know, a, a Ramsey name or then a Ramsey personality. Talk about that culture that says, hey, it's okay, but let's move forward. Yeah. Dave has said from the very beginning that we don't want people to work here for a, a J-O-B. Like if this is just like, you heard Ramsey is a great place to work, don't come work here. 
if you're going to work here, you have to practice what we preach and live this out because the entire world is hoping that they can point and say, nope, I saw a Ramsey team member use a credit card. See, it's all a lie. And so that is always a fear for us. And so we're very protective of that culture. And it's not a cult thing of like, listen, we're going to check your wallet for credit cards in the way in the door. We don't do that. We don't check your bank accounts. There's just an honor system of like, if you don't follow what we teach and you don't believe in it, then why do you want to sit in this place and try to help other people do it if you yourself don't believe it? So I think it's a really cool principle. And there are people all over the spectrum. And so we don't hire someone because they, you know, oh, you have 60000 in debt? That's the cutoff. Sorry, you can't work here. We hire people in all kinds of seasons, and some have hundreds of thousands of dollars in consumer debt, and some are have been following the principles for a long time. And so the key is not how much debt do you have and what's your net worth. It's, hey, are you actively working the baby steps? Mm -hmm. That's the indicator. And we see that marriage the same way. I would never tell someone, oh, don't marry them. They got hundred grand in student loan debt. We just say, if they want to stay in debt, that's a huge red flag for your wealth building journey and what God has for you if that's the mentality. So right. the values are more important than their status. Yeah, I think there's a lot of pastors and church leaders that are listening that can take that same principle into their own church and as well as church staff that should think about that for their leader. You know, there's things that the Ramsey way, you, you talk about it, we're weird, right? We're weird. We want you to pay off your house. We want you to use a debit card. Cash is better. You know, drive a hoopty car, all these things that are weird that are not normal, but you say that's who we are. That's our culture. And I think there's a lot of things in church that are like that as well. And there's people that are frustrated. There's people that like to poke at them. And there's some things that are worthy to be poked at, right? But in the same way, I would encourage anyone listening, maybe they're a staff pastor or they're that intern just getting started. If you're at your church and you don't like being there, then don't stay, right? If you don't believe in the values that your senior leadership team or your lead pastor, or even if it's your parent, if you don't believe in those values, then don't stay. There's plenty of other churches that you could work at or that you could attend, but I think it's so easy to take shots at it, to say that's not the right way, when really it's, okay, then why are you here? I always said that um, when I was at, at uh, college, people would say, oh, I don't like this university. I'm like. You're, you're knocking yourself. You're saying, I was stupid for picking this school. You chose this. Like, high school is maybe a little bit different to where yeah. that's where your parents live. This is college. Why are you doing this? Have you, have you sensed that with others? And, you know, as people talk about, it's such a great place to work. Have you seen people and, and said, hey, I, I think it's better for you to go and seen them thrive? Or has it been attention where people stay too long? Yeah, there's and resentment builds. When you start to stay past your your own welcome, when like Dave always says, hey, when your heart has left the building, your body and butt need to follow because it's a poison that poisons the well of w the work that we're trying to do. And Dave's always like, listen, we'll still be friends with you. You know, we'll see you around. We can hang out, but don't be here when it's going to be a distraction to the team and your heart's not in it. And you're the only one that's really angry. Sometimes we don't even know. And then the person leaves finally after three years of bitterness for whatever re their reasons are. And we're like, dude, why didn't you leave three years ago? And sometimes it's financial. Like, well, hey, I needed a job. I needed to get that next thing. But when it's your time, you need to go. And I've seen a lot of people come and go over the last, you know. I, when I started at Ramsey back in 2013, we had about 300 team members. We're now over 1,000. But there's been a ton of people in the midst of that that have, opted out. And we saw that with COVID. A lot of people during the pandemic just, hey, I'm moving back closer to family. Hey, I want something more flexible. Hey, I'm going to stay home with the kids. That's totally, you know, that all of that stuff happens and it's hard because you create deep friendships and Ramsey has, like most of my best friends 
are Ramsey team members mm -hmm. because of the circles that I run in. And so it's a hard thing when someone leaves because it can feel personal. And as mm -hmm. the leader, you've got to detach the emotion of this was a personal move versus this is what is best for them and it's what God has for them. Right. Growing up with immigrant parents, how did that shape your view on money? Where you know every immigrant story is different. Some people are saying, I, "I moved for my kids." Other people, they move for a job. Other people are penny pinchers. Other people are really going after the the opulence of the American dream. What was your family like in growing up, and how did that shape your views on money? My parents, uh, my dad immigrated from Egypt. My mom immigrated from Syria, and they met in Houston, Texas, at an Arabic Baptist church. And so they had my brother there. They moved to Boston. They had me. And so the home that I grew up in, everything was pretty modest. We were very, you know, middle class. I don't remember, like, struggle, struggling, struggling. And I also knew there was people at our church who lived in the nice neighborhoods and drove the nice cars. And my dad was had this, this the frugal, classic Middle Eastern vibe where we would be sitting there Sunday. We got the, the paper in. And we would be sitting there looking through the catalogs, cutting up the coupons for that week. Where are we going to shop? What are we going to get from the grocery store on sale? And so that was a blessing for me to see firsthand just intentionality when it comes to spending. And I also got the habit of, well, it's a deal, so we should buy it. And so there was still a level of like, we don't need it, but if it's a deal, you should just buy a ton of it. And so the principle I now have is never spend just to, never spend just to save. And a lot of people out there, we fall for the deal. And the marketing has changed dramatically from back, you know, 30 years ago when I was a kid to what it is today. And so my dad, I, I learned how to negotiate. I'd see him sit down at the car dealership and my mom would have to go to the car because she was like, I can't handle this. Like, it's going to be two hours of going back and forth. But I love that my dad dealt with that, you know, financial conflict in a healthy way, in a kind way, but a firm way. And so I think that I have that spirit of my father when it comes to frugality and, and negotiating. But we also, I didn't, we didn't know anything about, you know, making money. It was just about saving money. So when it came time for college, we didn't have anything saved. I took out student loans. I didn't really know what they had going on, except like, I think dad's got a pension that he'll be okay one day. And so that was my knowledge of money growing up. I did not have any background outside of that. Mm -hmm. One of the questions I got on Instagram, I asked, I said, hey, if you have any questions for George, they mentioned that a lot of times it's the, the main focus can be on cutting expenses. That's a big thing that is talked about. And Dave often says your greatest wealth building tool is your income. And you've said it and others have said it. Um, is it that that is the main priority and that income growth is a secondary goal? Or would that be a false perception of the Ramsey way? That income is is the focus of like getting your uh, that, income up. That, no, that 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 getting your cutting your expenses is the focus. Rice and beans, oh. beans and rice, going gazelle and tents yeah. versus getting your income up. Or do they are they coinciding? It's just the other one is what gets more of the clicks and the story behind it. Does that make sense? The question I'm asking. Yeah. Well, you know, we always say that uh, you've got a big hole, you need a bigger shovel, and so that's the income to debt ratio. But there's also in our plan, baby step, you know, zero through three is intensity. That's the gazelle intensity Dave talks about to get out of debt, get the emergency fund so that you have the stability and foundation. Baby step four, five, six, where we're investing for the future and paying off the house early, we say you move from intense to intentional. And so a lot of people, they have a hard time turning that corner because they flex the muscles of frugality. And now they're like, oh gosh, I'm going to go upgrade that car for $10,000 after driving the hoopty. It hurts emotionally. But we've also found that, you know, people's quality of life, like 
you can increase it in baby step four. And so while spending less and making more is always going to be the formula for margin to do whatever you want to do, whether it's giving, investing, there's also a level of like, it's okay to go on the vacation, dude. It's okay to give to that thing. Not everything has to be in this season right now. So that's the hardest part is helping people set those goals for themselves. How much should we be spending, saving, giving in this point in our life? One of the things that I found so interesting is I've been listening to the Ramsey Show for years. I did financial peace when my wife and I were engaged. We're coming up on seven years of marriage. And so I've, I've known this for a while. Obviously, we you know, give this as a church away for free because we believe in it so much. Um, you, you've done a lot of research and you shared a lot even in your message on the quantitative research of people who struggle with paying rent, people who struggle to pay their home, people, was it 51% worry about money daily? Was that the stat? Yeah. And so this is a worry. And for people who are listening, who are in the ministry or who are involved in their church, this is something that people care about deeply. Have you seen any of the, the, uh, qualitative, data following that as to why that is, and even kind of getting in the mind, putting our John Deloney hat on here, of the psychology of what people are dealing with, the people that you're on the phone with talking to. The path is simple. I mean, there's no simpler plan than the baby steps. There's no clearer plan. You, I mean, you guys say it over and over again. They really haven't changed at all in many, many years, yet people continue to fall into the same traps over and over again. What are some of the psychological markers that maybe those who are pastors or ministry leaders or those who just want to help who maybe don't deal with those that you've seen people fall into that trap over and over again? Mm, yeah, well— a lot of people, the, the psychological piece of this that you have to grapple with is that you're not that special, that you're not that unique. Everyone that calls in is like, hey, I know what you guys say, but it's 0%. Or, well, there's this family thing, and the truth is the plan is the plan. The Bible says what it says about money. It hasn't changed in thousands of years. Dave's plan hasn't changed in 30 years, and every time you do it, it works. So on the qualitative side, what we've seen, especially in, in congregations— is when you focus on financial wellness for your people, they have a better quality of life, number one. They're able to be more plugged into your church because they have more time and ability to focus on what you've got going on because every church has a thousand things they're wanting people to get plugged into, whether it's volunteer here or, hey, we have this missions thing here or, hey, can you support the camp that's coming up? And there's all kinds of obligations they have in their day-to-day -day lives, let alone in their, in their faith life. And so the more we can free them up to have more margin, the better they're going to be at stewarding the resources, the more plugged in they're going to be. And then what we found is the byproduct just happens to be, oh, they start to give more because they're making it a priority and they actually have money left over at the end of the month instead of not enough. And so that's why at Baby Step 7, at the end of the plan, it's this open-ended build wealth and give. Totally. And, and that looks different for everyone, but we found that's that if that's not the end goal— then it becomes an endless chase of nothingness. This analogy just popped in my mind, and I'll get your reaction to it to see if I'm on the right track. But you know when you leave late and every red light becomes oh. the end of the world, right? And it, the, it feels like it's 10 times longer than it is. Totally. It's the end of the world versus when you leave early, a red light's no big deal. I think about that with our money as well, right? When when you have paycheck to paycheck, when your bank account is, is, is this going to be approved or not, the stress that you feel becomes that red light to where you're so mad. It's almost like the, it was the light's problem 
as to why you're late. We blame it all the time. But I've said this before, you can't blame traffic if you left late, right? And I think a lot of times with money, we blame our outside experiences. We blame all, everything that's happening in the world as the problem, whereas really it's our own decisions that led us down that path. I feel like I'm a Ramsey personality That was good, here. man. Get this guy hired. <laughs> no, that's such a beautiful analogy. And I, I think about this when you mentioned paycheck to paycheck. I talk about uh, this in Financial Peace University. In the emergency fund, baby step three, you know, when you're broke, it's hard to have good luck. Everything's always breaking down. Life's just happening to me. And all of a sudden, you get above that. You get out of debt. You have the emergency fund. You weirdly, like, have less emergencies. Like, life is just sort of like, oh, okay. And, you're, and it, there's a good reason. It's not really luck. You're able to buy higher quality things, take care of the stuff you already have, maintain it, cash flow the expense that comes along instead of going into debt for it and paying for it six months down the line. And so when I was broke, that car repair, like, you remember the exact amount when you're broke. You're like, that was $802.36. And now that we're at a different place financially, my last car repair, I I could ballpark it. I was like, I don't know, three, four, I don't know, 300, 400 bucks. And it was like, a, we just yawned and moved on. Mm -hmm. And that to me is a huge part of financial peace. And when you're so strained and tight, you're also less able to live life with an open hand. You're less likely to give. You're less likely to see that opportunity. And that's a huge part of why I advocate for getting out of debt. It's not just this... Debt is bad. The companies are coming after you. It's a part of it. But I just know the quality of your life, you just release all the tension in your body. When we see debt-free screams on our stage, the people are levitating. Their posture is better than ever before. When you're in debt, you're just sort of hunkered down, just white-knuckling it through your life. Totally. One of the last episodes we did, we talked about prayer. And uh, a friend of mine, Ryan, was on, and he actually was our first Instagram reel that had a million views. So that Whoa, was, uh, congratulations. Great, yeah, great Spreading story. the message. So thanks, Ryan, for that. But he mentioned this story that he had, he was praying about, or his his dad, they, they have family businesses that they own. His dad was praying about this decision, and it felt like a slam dunk decision of this, go with this company, it'll be a good revenue boost for them, and just... In prayer, the Lord said, no, don't do this. And so he didn't do it. And I think it was around six months later, I can go back and listen and verify, but that that company actually went belly up and they would Whoa. have lost basically their whole company with them on that. When you think about the financial component, how has the spiritual impacted or been a part of this journey from getting out of debt, from starting a marriage, from following after the things God has said, how has that been intertwined for you where you've seen what a lot of people in the world, I mean, we talk about this at, uh, we have these events called Generosity Accelerator where we teach churches about um, how they can give more to missions like our church does. And we've just seen God's hand be on our church. And so we teach this. But one of the things that my dad says all the time is he says that people, they, they want to discourage you from giving. They want to discourage you from being so involved in your church because they're like, why would you give so much money? Because money's their God. And, and when you give it freely, you're saying, I don't respect your God. And in that same way, I think that on our side, we see how God works through money so much. But in your line of work, you have people that are Christians that are non-Christians that are calling in. Have you seen that in infused in your own life? Have you seen that infused in some of the people that are calling to where those godly principles start popping up time and time again? Well, what's interesting is, you know, I've, I've collaborated with a lot of people in the financial space now, trying to kind of 
you know, build bridges and make friends and, and get our message out to different platforms and new audiences. And as I've done that, talking to these financial YouTubers and podcasters and speakers, what's fascinating to me is they are so astoundingly successful. I mean, I'm talking net worth of $5 million, $10 million, $20 million. And at the same time, they're asking me, why are you so content? Like, where does, why do you have so much peace about your journey? And it's kind of this no offense, but you're only a millionaire, right? Like when you get into this space, it's like there's this endless chase of more and more and more. And the key differentiator that it blew my mind was that the Ramsey plan, being based on biblical principles, has a faith underpinning that gives this whole thing weight. And so it doesn't just float and become an endless chase of the wind, you know, like Ecclesiastes says. Instead, it becomes this grounded thing of, I know exactly what I'm doing this for. I'm doing this for the kingdom. I'm doing this for my family. I'm doing this because this is the impact I want to make. And people don't have that out there. It's just like, what's the next $5 million for? I don't know. I keep up with my buddy who, who did great last year. And so I think the spiritual aspect uh, as it relates to money is so important because without that, it becomes this endless chase. And without the generosity piece, which I talked about in my message here at River Valley, I think it's so powerful to look at the story in the Bible of God giving his only son and that the power of that generosity is way better than any amount of wealth you'll ever see in this on this earth. Right. And you see that with people who don't know the Lord. And maybe there's people listening today that say, hey, I'm not one of those people, but I saw George and I clicked on this episode. There's no end, right? What's what is the purpose, right? You know, the Bible says that, you know, why store up your blessings on earth where moth and vermin destroy, right? You can't take it with you. You made a joke in your message that you're not going to take your sky miles with you to heaven, which I thought was funny. But it it's so true that so many people, and and if I can be honest, many Christians, they fall into that trap of really trying to build up to keep up with, you know, the Joneses or to keep up with this idea of this is where I should be. You know, this is, I'm going to compare myself to others because this is where I need to be at. And of course, there's a there's a healthy version of that, of, of tracking, okay, where am I on track for retirement? Are we saving for kids' college? There's a healthy version, but there's a very easy slippery slope of unhealthiness that so many people fall victim to, to where they say, no, I'll, I'll be there if I just get to that point, or I'll be there if I just get there. And again, pastors do that all the time. Maybe it's not with, with the money that they're making, but certainly with the attendance that they have in their church, certainly maybe with the money their church raises or the money that their church gives. And for us, we kind of have seen ourselves just blow past any number that we could ever have. And it's so easy to say, well, 11.6 million for Kingdom Builders was great, but we missed our goal of 12, you know, and kick ourselves and remind us that, you know, 14 years ago, we would have been thrilled raising a few hundred thousand dollars or once we hit a million or once we hit 5 million. It's just so easy to fall victim of that. As you've been on staff with Ramsey, have you had moments where you've had to fight against that attitude of contentment? I mean, your boss, whether he's a billionaire or not, he's pretty close. He's owns everything, no debt too, which some people, it's like, yeah, I have a billion dollars of assets, but I have $800 million of debt, whereas he's got no debt. He owns it, you know, free and clear. He's got a lot of toys. Yeah. You know, he travels, he does things because he can. He's in baby step seven. You know, his baby step seven is more like a, you know, seven with seven exponents on it. Um, but he's still there. Have you felt that as you've, oh, I'm a Ramsey personality now. You know, I've got a book that's come out. And I don't know if you've got any royalty checks yet. It's only been out a month. But 
have you have you seen even the enemy start kind of tempting you with that? Well, I was on that person's podcast and I talked to that person who's a billionaire. Have you seen that or is it just I don't know. I'm I've I've fought against it so hard early on that I'm not dealing with that. Man, that's tough. I th- I think, you know, when you look at the goalposts, the problem is they're always moving in this world. And so, you know, if you say, hey, my goal is to become a millionaire, well, you get there. Like we woke up one day and the net worth statement said we're millionaires and our life didn't change. And then all of a sudden you're like, what, uh, what about two million? You know, like, what about five million? And so the goal is always going to change. And I think there's a healthy version of that. And, you know, we, are, we were made to contribute. And part of that is having clear goals and having vision. The Bible talks a lot about having a very clear vision. There's nothing wrong with setting those. And Dave likes to set what we call BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals. So it's always the like, I don't think we're going to make it, but we're going to try. And what happens is if you set a $10 million goal for giving, you might hit it, and that's great. But if you set a $12 million and you hit 11.5, well, that's always, you know, you're always going to kind of lean towards the thing that stretches you a little bit. And I think there's a beautiful piece of that where the gap is where we have to trust God. If we set a goal that's too easy, we just knock it out and we think, <laughs> look at Logan. I did it. I lost the weight. I got the number. But when it's a little bit scary for you and you're going, God, I don't think we can do this. And I know this is what you're calling us to do. We need your help. That's when you have those abundant blessings on the other side. So as far as those financial goals for us, you know, our life didn't change when we hit a million dollars. It's a fun milestone. We don't get to retire. And like, there's still goals of like, what if we could pay cash and upgrade the house with cash one day? And what if we could upgrade my car because it's 10 years old and one day I'll get, but I think the goals slow down and you learn to be content. And what's been beautiful is having a new daughter. Our first baby was born about six months ago. That makes you slow down. And you're like, none of this matters. Like she doesn't need to exist in a 4,000 square foot home. She fits in a tiny crib and all she wants is your love and affection and it, none of that matters. So that's been a great reminder for me because I'm so driven, it's hard for me to slow down and be content with my career goals or financial goals. And so having the spiritual goals helps center all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, it's so easy when there's those milestone moments, but sometimes when you're in the middle of it and you don't have the the wedding or you don't have the, you know, the bankruptcy moment where the I've had it or the the child, it's easy to just get caught up in the mundane and slowly as it goes by, the debt starts piling up or the other side, it starts going the right way. And it just, oh, I didn't even realize, you know, if you don't check your uh, your 401k balance for a while, you know, after a few You'll years, be impressed. You, yeah, you look at it, oh, wow, I didn't even realize that. I was just putting in money every month. And, you know, you mentioned this, that a lot of pastors say this uh, line, but you mentioned it in the message, you know, you, you underestimate what you can do in a year, but, but, or you overestimate what you can do in a year, but underestimate what you can do in 10 or five or however many years. And, you know, you're living proof of that, right? I think people would say, oh, I mean, I could never do that. But, like, how old are you? 34. 34, you know, and it's like debt-free, paid off the house, millionaire, right? And to to them, maybe they're 34, and they're like, I'm on the other side of that spectrum. And I love how you close the message. And we've mentioned your message a a couple times. I encourage people to watch it and listen. But you ended it with this story of this family that, surprised their their kids that they ended up not only paying off all the debt in their family, but paying off the mortgages 
of their children, which is just incredible. And I actually heard multiple people in the book signing line say that was so impactful to me. And actually one guy, I think he said he had 17 grandchildren. And he said, I don't know that I'm going to be able to have all my grandchildren's mortgages paid off, but at least my kids will be able to get that done. And I think, though, you know, the BHAG, the, the church uh, invented that before uh, Jim Collins did. That's uh, right. Faith. Take right? that, Jim. Um, a faith goal. But when it's about generosity, it starts to make sense with Scripture, right? God's saying, no, it's not wrong to have a lot. But when it becomes an idol in your life, yeah, then it's wrong. And that's why the rich young ruler, he offered him to sell everything he had. He didn't say that to all the wealthy people. Zacchaeus actually to his own admission said, I'm going to give even more. And God was like, all right, if that's what you want to do, I'm not going to stop the generosity. But I do think, again, for many who are listening who are Christians and they'd say, why, are, why is River Valley so passionate about generosity? Why is Ramsey Solution so passionate about generosity? Because it's the only anecdote that I see in Scripture to greed, right? And as we fight against this, I feel like I'm preaching a sermon here, but— This is good. You should, are you writing all this down? <laughs> it's recorded. We're fine. It's recorded. Go back later. This is strong. As we fight against this, I think it's just so important for us, whether it's money, whether it's followers, whether it's you know a house, whether it's impressing other people. It's this idea of contentment is the root of it. And as you become more content, the beautiful thing, you get more content. And for me, like, once I paid off my car, truly, this was, like, a big deal for me where I understood this principle. I shared this with Dave that I was dumb and gotten a bunch of business debt and kept it from my wife. You can, if you want to hear the story, I already shared it. I'm not going to share it again. Um, Too painful. Um, But once I paid off my car, it just felt so different. It was, I, I, I literally was like, why would I get rid of this thing? This is mine. It's so easy. Whereas before, when it's like leased or it's it's finance, you don't have that level of ownership. And yeah. now, it, like, I want a, a a pickup truck. That would be like something I like woodworking. And it's like I want a pickup truck. But then when I look at the price of a pickup truck, I'm like, oh no, no, my car is amazing. But there's something it's about great. something about owning something and that ownership mentality. And I think the same could be said. I've been talking for a while, but the same can be said about the work that you do. When you have this ownership mentality, things start to shift. Since you've now been put on stages and you now are are representing on the Ramsey Show, have you? seen that ownership mentality change the way you view things, change the way you look at things, because you're now a face of the brand. Yeah, I mean, there's the financial ownership, which you mentioned, and it does feel different. You take care of it differently. You drive the car differently. The house, you know, feels different when it's all yours because people say I'm a homeowner. I'm like, oh, technically the bank owns it and they can take it away if you have one slip up. And so there's a beauty. And, you know, we talked about in the message, Proverbs 22, 7, the borrower slave to the lender. And as long as you don't fully own it, you're a slave to someone else, and God is, did not create us to have a, a slave mentality. He created us to be free. And so that from a financial side, ownership is powerful. And on the career side, one of our core values at Ramsey is self-employed mentality. And it's this idea of like, act like you own the place in the best way. And that might mean, hey, you see a mess on the floor, just clean it up. Even if it's not your mess, act like you own the place. And if it was your place, you would just go clean up the mess. And so that's a beautiful way we've cultivated a, a, a culture that isn't entitled and isn't waiting on everyone else to do something and instead goes, if I ran this business, what would I do next? How would I treat that customer? How would I interact with this team member? And so I love keeping that at the forefront when it comes to ownership. And again, you know, we're stewards of everything entrusted to us, our careers, our finances. So when you think about it that way, you sort of rise above it. You're sort of looking down <laughs> at your own life going like, all right, if this was a game of chess, like what is the right next move for 
George Camel Incorporated because he works for God Incorporated. And that changes the decisions and it makes them a whole lot less selfish. And it ends up with more generosity, which, like you mentioned, is the antidote to greed, to discontentment, to a lack of humility, to a lack of joy. It, it's amazing the benefits of generosity. So it's fun and it feels good to talk about generosity, but I think the benefits can't be understated that it is sort of the whole point of our time here on earth is kingdom impact, earthly impact. You mentioned the chess moves and the next moves. As you think about your trajectory, you're so very young and you're at Ramsey, you have this new book out. What are things that excite you that are maybe new initiatives that haven't happened yet that maybe will happen years from now or you're working on them that you can bring us into maybe your head about this is what I'm excited about or this is what I'm dreaming. And of course, nobody's going to quote you on it and say, you said this on that you podcast. Said. But what are things that you're excited about? Because the sad reality is people are continuing to struggle over and over again in this area and it's not going away, but you've kind of tapped into uh, a younger generation of people that are, are listening, uh, using different things. Even I was listening to the audiobook of your book, and you have sound effects in there, and it's fun. And so for those who are listening to this podcast, they're probably audiobook listeners as well. You, you kind of say, hey, the rules are the rules, but I don't care. We're going to have fun with it. And I think that's what has made people drawn to you and why it's been successful as you've been rising throughout the ranks of Ramsey. What are things that excite you? What are new initiatives or, or dabbling with things that you'd say, hey, I don't know if this is going to happen, but it's exciting to me and I'm excited to work on it. We just had a, a kind of a dream session of like, hey, for the GK brand under the Ramsey umbrella, what are the things that we dream about that we, we actually wrote, we all wrote letters. And this is a great exercise for anyone in leadership, your team. We had to write a letter that five years from now we'd be reading about what has transpired over the last five years. So that was a really good exercise to start dreaming with actual words on paper of here's all the things we've done, here's the impact we've had, here's the growth. Maybe it's numbers, maybe it's people, maybe it's products. And so for me, I'm a creative. Like that is, I uh, Ken Coleman, fellow Ramsey personality, has a great assessment called Get Clear that helps people figure out what is the work I was made to do. I was made by the creator to contribute. This is what I need to be doing. And at the end of that assessment, it spits out the PDF. And what was shocking to me was it was like, you are made to create for the sake of creation. I was like, I've never thought about that. Like some people create for other reasons. I create because I love creating. And so that freed me to go, I love working on the new and exciting. I don't love the minutia of day-to-day -day monotony of you just got to go do this thing again. And so my favorite times at Ramsey are the meeting rooms when we're working on scripts for the next YouTube video. And we're all joking around coming up with that jokes and creating the content even more than just recording it, which is sort of like, all right, we did the fun part. Now it's like you got to eat your vegetables and, and produce it and deliver it. And so for me, the things that we dream about are we all had on our letters, George's Netflix comedy special released and we have reached a whole new audience that would never, ever listen to The Ramsey Show, but tuned in to hear him talk about money in a funny and relatable way. So that's one thing that I dream about. May not be Netflix, but just creating a, a comedy special from Ramsey with my brand of humor that also carries the message in my story would be incredible. The first five minutes of your message was, you know, a teaser for that. That's right. Yeah. We can weave yeah. that in. Yeah. This is I'm testing it on the road. Yeah. That's how comedians do it. The other is uh, Rachel Cruz, fellow Ramsey personality, came out with a line of kids' books. 
Uh, she has one out and there's another two coming down the line. And um, it's, she's teaching these principles of contentment and generosity and gratitude at a young age. And so I was inspired as a musician to go like, how cool would it be if we had our, a kid's album from Ramsey that parents could play on loop of music that didn't suck and the parents actually enjoyed listening to and the kids are memorizing and regurgitating these concepts of give, save, spend and delayed gratification and generosity. So that's something that's on my heart. It may never happen, so don't quote me on this, but it's something that I've, I've, I've said it out loud and I said this is something I want to create one day and that's different for Ramsey. We've worked, we don't produce music at Ramsey. That's a weird thing. But, you know, John Deloney came out with his uh, Questions for Humans conversation cards. Mm -hmm. It's one of our best-selling products. And all it is is decks of cards made to help people connect. Spouses, families, kids, coworkers, holidays, you name it. And so we're starting to branch out. My audiobook is a part of that. I, was the, I, was, I love being the guinea pig to try something new and exciting. The narrative podcast, Borrowed Future. The fine print I did, which was unpacking all the money traps out there with a narrative podcast series. So I love trying the new things because I I believe my one of my gifts that I'm called to use is the gift of creation for the sake of creation. Right. I, I mean, at a time, Ramsey being on a podcast was probably not something they thought of. And now it's like number one podcast. Well, right? it was like, well, radio, radio, radio. Yeah. And then it was like, well, we, we, sh we should be on podcast. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we should be on YouTube. So while we're in all the places, um, Dave is very – and one really cool business aspect is Dave's big on not being platform agnostic and not having all of our eggs in one platform basket. Because all it takes is YouTube changing one algorithm right. and your YouTube channel has tanked. And so owning the, the audience and the connection to that audience, whether that's an email list or some level of connection beyond a social platform, um, is huge. And that's been a great way we're able to stay connected with fans – for whatever thing happens next and whatever Elon decides to change the name to. Yeah, exactly. A couple more questions here as we close. But you talk about this idea of a dream session, and there's a lot of people listening, whether, again, they're a pastor, and they serve under a lead pastor who has a vision. And it's funny because my dad and Dave, they remind me of each other in just a lot of ways. And when they met, they were just two peas in a pod. They just were going back and forth about all sorts of things. And Dave mentioned multiple times, he said, how have we not met before? This is crazy. And all of us kind of felt the same way. But when you're dreaming within the dream of somebody else, we've taught sessions about this at, at our church conferences because it can be difficult. How do I know if my dream fits within the dream of Dave or fits within the dream of the Ramsey family? Are there benchmarks or guidelines that you use as an organization to know like i mean at the end of the day if dave says i don't like it we're not doing it that can happen of course it doesn't sound like he's that type of leader but how do you know or how do you what are ways practically that you can say this is in alignment and not just a dream that's in my heart but actually a dream that fits within the greater dream of our organization yeah this is something that ramsey in the last i'm going to say five years has really leaned into and it gets kind of nerdy, but it's also a beautiful way to actually keep track and not just say, yeah, we dreamed that thing, but I don't know if we're going to hit it and what all the pieces, because we have so many businesses within Ramsey. When you think about the media department and live events and then Ramsey education, what they're doing and entree leadership with the business arm. And so we have created uh, for the first time a entire company vision and we call it a desired future. I think it was uh, Dr. Henry Cloud 
he came in and, and developed this idea of a desired future. And there's a dashboard that every leader has for their business, their PNL, with the company desired future and then your business's desired future within that that points to one of those things. So then it becomes very clear what we're after. And the thing that te that crushes teams and gets people to leave is that lack of clarity. They're like, I don't know what we're doing and why we're doing it. Versus, hey, we're green, yellow, or red in our area based on actual numbers and tracking and metrics. So that's been really cool to see. And so what helps for leaders is now you know what the scoreboard is. Now we know, hey, this is the company vision that was laid out that the board and executive committee decided on. Here's the personalities team, we now have our own desired future that is directly tied to one of the, what we call defining objectives of that overall company desired future. And so desired future is kind of your vision statement. Then you have defining objectives of here's what must be true in order to complete that vision in a given year. So that's been the really cool thing. And it doesn't have to be in the next year we're going to do this. It could be, hey, by 2027, we will be XYZ. And then every year you have different objectives to hit that. So that's a great practice that any leaders out there can use, especially churches. Go write that, go sit with your, your, your team and have everyone write that letter and then say, hey, what are all the themes? That's what we did for me. We said, what are the themes we're seeing amongst all these letters? Great, let's develop one mission vision uh, statement that captures all of this for our desired future. Great, now, Logan, you're gonna be tasked with the influence portion because that's a part of our goal. And here's the defining objective you have. Grow social media following by 500,000. Uh, collaborate with other churches in this way. All of that really gets people on fire because now we all know exactly what our role is, how it relates to our defining objective, how it relates to the desired future, and now we can all celebrate the big win at the end of the year instead of just going like, we right. made money, we got attendance, people were saved, but like, did we actually accomplish our goals? No, that's brilliant. And I want to work on that with our team because that's, it, it, it makes so much sense. And I think no matter how big of a church you are, whether you have a staff like several hundred or you're a couple people and with volunteers, I think that expressing that, especially for younger generation, you know, we're, we're both young, young leaders in the scope of all those who are working. I, I'm getting a little bit older to say, man, I've been on staff for almost eight years. Um, but that is something that I see among peers. That's very valuable. I mean, you see the stats, people are not staying at their workplaces because of the money. They're not staying at their workplaces necessarily because of promotion. They're staying there because of the mission. They're staying there, especially if you're in ministry. You're not in the ministry oh, for the yeah. money, right? Yeah. But there's so many people that are there saying, no, I, I want to make a difference. But it's difficult. I, I mean, I say myself, even though I probably spend the most time of anyone in our organization with my dad, who's our senior leader, I still wonder, oh, am I doing that? So I love that exercise to say, no, this is how this ties to it. Because I think there's all sorts of KPIs and objectives and attendance numbers and kids numbers and how many children did we dedicate? How many people did we baptize? Or how, many, how much money did we bring in? How many downloads did we have? Whatever the industry is. But knowing, no, this actually matters to the organization. This matters to our grander vision is so impactful and helpful. And so. then you know exactly, hey, if you have an idea... Well, now you know how to sell it in the right way. Right. So now when you come up with that presentation, it's, hey, I know here, here's our desired future, our vision statement for the year. I have this idea that could help us in my area, and here's what I want to do, and here's what it's going to take. 
Well, now it's a no-brainer. They're like, this is great. This is the initiative every leader wants to see from their team. Right. So it's a very different mentality versus I've got this idea and it runs perpendicular and kind of steamrolls and takes away resources from what we're at, at trying to achieve. And so that's what I found works for me to get 11 years at Ramsey. That is the leadership hack. Align your goals to the leader's goals and to the company goals, and all of a sudden you're going to see more opportunity come your way, and you're going to feel more fulfilled. You're less likely to leave because, number one, you're doing the things that you want to do. Number two, you have great leadership who've allowed you to take those opportunities. And so if, if you can't do that, it's probably not the place for you. And uh, it's one of the reasons people leave their jobs is because of poor leadership. I mean, we can all have, we all have the toxic boss stories. Hopefully that happens less in ministry, but it still happens. No, it's similar. You know, yeah. and you, luckily River Valley has run so well. I've got to see just some of the, how it's run on the inside. And I'm just so impressed with the level of excellence and I think that means you're going to have more people flocking to work here, more people excited about the mission, more people passionate, and they'll stay longer. I've been at Ramsey 11 years. That's like a record for a millennial to hold an <laughs> 11-year career at any one given place. But there's a beauty to just committing and planting roots deep in an organization. So good. Well, this conversation has been incredible, impactful. I know those that are listening, any last message you'd want to share to ministry leaders? I know you get to Ooh, share to a lot of people yeah. all the time on your podcasts and shows, but any message that you'd specifically say to those who are in ministry, whether they're on staff or in a volunteer basis? Well, I don't get to talk to ministry leaders a lot. So I would say, number one, I know it can be a thankless job at times, sometimes financially, sometimes emotionally. The level of just complaints and people's opinions and congregation, like, you know, church would be so easy if people weren't involved, but we're all fallen people and have opinions and we all have our thing we're trying to do. And so I would just tell them, keep going. Remember what you got into this for and whatever you need to do to get yourself in a financial place to where you can be more focused on your family and on your, your job and this mission for your ministry, it's worth it. It's worth it to get out of debt. And if God, God has never presented someone with an opportunity that was debt. So anytime someone's like, oh, I have this opportunity to go $40,000 in debt and I, God's calling me, I go, nope, that's last night's pizza, dude. Like, while God calls us to pretty big leaps of faith, they're not going to put our family at risk financially either. And so the, I think there's a really tough thing for ministry leaders to grapple with when times are tough and the economy's crazy and the congregation can't give like they want to. Uh, don't take the shortcuts. Like, that is not, I mean, you, sometimes you got to go through the desert and it's going to take longer than you want to get to, to the promised land, but that's the path and that's the way God has intended it. And so keep going, get your people the financial wellness they need and put your own mask on first. And so if you're sitting with debt while telling the congregation to get out of debt and give more, it's going to fall on some, some hollow ground and some rocky soil. So walk the talk and get Ramsey Plus in your congregation and just see how God blesses it. Yeah, it's so good. Well, thank you, George, for this conversation. Again, thank you for all the work that you do. For those listening, make sure to get George's new book, Breaking Free from Broke, right? That's right. And uh, if you haven't listened from last year's episode of Dave, go back after you've listened to this one now. Go listen from one year ago, the episode we did with Dave Ramsey on Talking Church, wherever you listen to podcasts, and uh, check out George's YouTube channel and all the things that Ramsey's doing. And I'm excited for the Netflix comedy special coming soon. One day, my friend. You're a fantastic interviewer by the way and so I can see why this podcast is is really reaching people and uh, one of my one of my favorite interviews ever that I've done and that's all to your prep 
It's all in the preparation. Well, you heard it here first. Thank you for the compliment. Let another man praise you. Until next time, thanks for talking church, George. Thank you.